You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Robert B. Talese. Bob is the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. His central research area is democratic theory, where he pursues issues concerning legitimacy, justice, and public political argumentation. Some of his books include Democracy and Moral Conflict, and his most recent, Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. In this episode, we talk about the value of democracy, what it means to overdo it, what we should be doing instead, and so much more. Hello, Bob, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mayusha, for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. I remember several, it's almost a year from now, I was on your podcast. It's true. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> when we're talking about a not quite so recent, but still relatively new election of a, a president right, who right. surprised us in all the wrong ways. And now we're talking about what has become of us as a result of it <laughs> in this podcast. So, so it's, good to, it's good to chat with you again. And I'm looking forward to discussion. So, so before we get into just that, the political stuff, how did you get interested in philosophy? You know, it's an interesting question. I grew up in um, a suburb of New York City in New Jersey. So I grew up in northern Jersey with parents who were uh, who understood that it was very important for kids to go to college. But uh, my mom didn't go to college. My dad went to college to get his um uh, CPA. He was an accountant and a small business owner. And so they had this view that, you know, me and my sisters needed to go to college, which, you know, was correct, but they didn't have a view about what college was. So I applied to one college, uh, which is William Patterson College. At the time, it was a college. It's a small commuter school in Jersey, in Wayne, New Jersey. Figuring that I would, you know, you know, promise my parents I would try it out for a year. And if I didn't like it, they would let me, you know, quit and then go on and do something else. What that other thing was, I didn't know yet, but I wasn't uh, wasn't really invested in the idea of going to college. And so um, I showed up. I don't exactly know how I showed up as an economics major. I don't. Oh, re- wow. I don't remember declaring that major. I don't. Is remember. that the story you tell us? Is is that revisionist history? No, 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 no. This is this is this is the honest truth. I don't okay. remember applying to college. I don't remember checking a box that said economics. Okay. I okay. showed up and someone's like, oh, "You're an economics major. You have to take these classes." I'm like, "All right. I don't know what economics is, but so what?" Um. So I spent the first semester sort of, you know, working at a job and then going to to classes and wondering what I was doing, I basically stumbled into an intro to philosophy class. You know, I had taken in high school a course uh, my senior year of high school that was called philosophy, which was really a history of ideas class. It wasn't philosophy. You just sort of, you know, learned Descartes said, I think therefore I am. And Thales thought everything was water. You know, you sort of, you attached odd ideas to impressive sounding names. It was kind of like, you know, training for a cocktail party or something. And, you know, that was the end. And I thought, well, philosophy was this peculiar thing that people did at some point in history. And, 
you know, it stopped somewhere. And, you know, so I didn't know that there was a discipline called philosophy that, you know, still had practitioners or inhabitants. And so I stumbled into this intro to philosophy class and came quickly to learn that the person teaching the class was a philosopher. <laughs> you, right, right, and right. And I thought, well, wait a minute, like people can do, people can be philosophers? Like, yeah. You, and like you can major in philosophy was a complete revelation to me. So, you know, at the beginning of that second, uh, the, at the beginning of the second semester of college, I declared my major, changed my major from economics to philosophy and um, had to explain to my father when I did it that the guy who taught the philosophy class I took in the fall was um, actually earned a living as, as a philosophy teacher. It was something he couldn't, but he said, you know, the, the people teaching these classes that you're going to take, is this their job? Like, this is I, oh, wow. very sincerely asking me if it was a career rather than just, you know, a, you know, like, you know, th these philosophy teachers, like karate instructors, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right. a, it's like a side hustle, what we'd call like a side right. hustle. It's like, no, right. no, no, these are like professors, you know, they're, they're, so it was a very, very interesting series of sort of happy accidents with some revelations along the way. And, you know, I, I did a lot of philosophy as an undergraduate. It was an interesting experience in that William Patterson College at the time. Again, I think at the time it was like three quarters of their students were business or communications majors. And so there were this core of us that were philosophy students. Um, every one of us got a PhD in philosophy. It was, well, it, uh, uh, most of us got PhDs in philosophy. Others of us went on to do other kinds of academic things. So, um, you know, I went to, I like to tell people these kinds of things. So, you know, if you know Tom Brooks, who's the dean of the law school at Durham over in the UK, I went to college with him. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I went to college with Kevin Levine, the uh, Civil War uh, historian, uh, who just wrote, a, by the way, a fabulous book on debunking the myth that there were black Confederates. And so, you know, I, I have this sort of like group of about a dozen classmates from college who all were these sort of misfits who showed up at this little college in New Jersey. And we're all have academic careers now. It, you know, it's Greg Caruso. I went to college with Greg Caruso, the free will skeptic. <laughs> I mean, it was just so it was this interesting. Anyway, so um, I got into philosophy just because, um, you know, in, in that intro to philosophy class, you know, I, which I, you know, showed up in college, not knowing what I was doing there. And I just learned that there was a discipline that was committed to the idea that it's always valid to ask, what am I doing here? <laughs> that that's always a question that you could ask and that it makes sense to wonder about that. And that there's something um, important and possibly uh, edifying, although perhaps in some, uh, you know, in some moments, kind of frustrating about asking that question. And so, yeah, that's what I did. And never went, you know, never looked back. I, you know, finished college and, you know, somewhere along the line, I, I learned that there was such a thing as graduate school and, <laughs> and, you know, went to, went to City University in New York and got a PhD and um, finished my PhD in 2001 and went on the job market and got offered a job in Nashville, Tennessee. And that's where I've been ever since. So your latest book yes. is called Overdoing Democracy. Great. And I wanted to talk about some of the things that is in that book. Yeah. And, you know, since the title is Overdoing Democracy, I think my first question, and I don't want to take this for granted, being a philosopher and all, how do you describe, how do you define democracy? 
Well, that's it's a good place to start because you know you know democracy is a lot of different things, and you know it's uh, some people think of democracy as a set of institutions, set of practices. When you, I'm pretty sure that pretty close to the the person on the street conception of democracy, you know, democracy is voting and majority rule. Uh, we sometimes think of democracy principally as a set of dysfunctions, especially you know once we read Plato. But what uh, what I say in the book and what, uh, you know, the view that I that I take and have taken um, in a lot of my work is that um, democracy is best understood as a moral. And in fact, I would want to argue, although um, we don't have to get into it uh, here, that um, the institutions and the practices and the constitutional mechanisms that uh, are common in democracies, you know, make sense only if we understand them as serving the the broader uh, i would say even deeper moral ideal of self-government among political equals and so uh, i call that an ideal i also say it's an aspiration because um i think that uh the way that we should understand the actual workings of real world democracies is to look at how they function and um try to judge you know, the extent to which they as societies are sincerely invested in trying to pursue and enrich and in better and in better understanding what that ideal self-government among equals uh, requires of us, um, uh, both institutionally, individually and collectively. So think of democracy as a moral project, as um, uh, the uh, aspiration to live together uh, in a self-governing community in the absence of bosses and kings and rulers and also of subordinates uh, to live together as equals. So, so you're painting the picture, you know, as you were talking and even as reading your book, I can't help but think about Plato who had issues with this notion. <laughs> yes. And so to that end, I want to talk about the value. Right. Because there's some criticism suggests that, hey, we prefer other kinds of things. And there are some philosophers who have problems with this self-governance that you're describing. So right. so in response to them, what is the value of this project, of this moral idea? Well, so, you know, there are certain kinds of certain kinds of philosophers, um, including uh, at least in some ways of reading him, Plato uh, and contemporaries who are, are not thrilled with democracy or who think that we should uh, explore other options, who tend to be instrumentalists about democracy's value. And what they do is the, those arguments typically run, you know, democracy makes errors and the errors are costly and they're hard to retrieve once you make them. And when democracy makes mistakes, you know, people suffer and all kinds of you know, all kinds of you know, justice doesn't get done, all kinds of problems emerge. And so democracy doesn't have a great track record. So we ought to either trash it and put something else in its place. Now, of course, and I both know, I'm suspecting a lot of listeners know, you know, what the alternative is, is a real important question. Uh, you know, we can, you know, give Winston Churchill a little bit of credit here. You know, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. Um, but um, so, you know, don't think that democracy's value lies strictly with its instrumental uh, value. That is, I don't think that we ought to judge democracy strictly in terms of the value of the outcomes that it tends to produce by way of public policy. Now, I'm a pragmatist, so I have a complicated relation with non-instrumental forms of value. <laughs> so, um, 
So I, I, what I would want to say is not that I, I'm an intrinsicalist about democracy's value, but just that I'm a non-instrumentalist. So I think that the, the value of democracy lies uh, sort of in two in, sort of lies in two sites. One is that I think um, democracy is the best and it might be the only um, morally acceptable solution to what I regard as the sort of most fundamental problem of politics which is, you know, the sort of Nozick problem. Why not anarchy, right? Uh, I think that democracy is um, uh, the best, maybe the only solution to the problem of how to reconcile political authority with the moral equality of persons. That is, uh, only, only, under de- only under democratic conditions can we say that individuals can be, within certain constraints, coerced in ways that do not disrespect their moral equality, um, that don't render them mere subjects or mere objects of legislation, that they can still be authors in some sense of the common rules that govern them and their fellows, even when uh, those rules are you know, imposing requirements on them that they reject and even for good reason. So I think that democracy is a philosophical solution to a very, very deep problem. Um, and that makes it valuable. But I also think that, um, again, the aspiration to live together with others in a way that is can not only consistent with their moral equality, but is, you know, sort of acknowledging uh, the moral equality of people, despite turn out to be often very deep differences in the way we value things and what we think life is about and what makes for a successful life, uh, how we should conduct ourselves. Um, That aspiration and adopting it and pursuing it, I think, is something that's valuable as well. Not in a purely instrumental sense. We don't get it right. Uh, We don't get it right, certainly not all the time. Maybe maybe democracy has a better track record, as Churchill reminded us, uh, than some of the other, than all of the other uh, arrangements that have been tried. But the the attempt, the aspiration, the striving to live together with others who are fundamentally unlike oneself in a way that acknowledges their moral equality and respects them as moral equals, I think there's a value in adopting that stance. So that's where I I, I would want to begin what would have to be a much longer you know, uh, uh, presentation of where I think the the value of democracy lies. It's the solution to a really, really important, and I think the only morally acceptable solution to a very deep philosophical problem. And there's something um, admirable and valuable about taking up the aspiration to live with others uh, in a way that recognizes and respects their equality. So here's the question, and this is the thing that makes the title of your book sound strange. <laughs> Good. If, it, if democracy has this value, yeah. Or values that you just described. Yeah. How is it possible that democracy can be overdone? Well, good. So, you know, the, the editor and I struggled a little bit. I, I struggled this too. We, you know, we, we went back and forth a little bit with the, with the title. Uh, initially, I wanted to call the book just Putting Politics in Its Place. And um, eventually I was convinced that that was too cumbersome and, and the rest. So overdoing democracy has a certain snap to it. But, you know, you're right. Uh, I, 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 I've been talking a lot about the book, as some people might uh, might know. Uh, and you know, people hear the title and assume that the book is an anti-democracy book, or is a kind of um, book in the the style of a Jason Brennan, or that it's some kind of libertarian book. That 
the right way to think of democracy is to think of it as requiring a minimal state or some very slender uh, kind of institutional apparatus. And the book is neither of those things. Um, for the record, you know, I'm a pretty robust deliberative Democrat uh, and an epistemic deliberative Democrat at that. But um, so how can it be overdone? Yeah, you know, we're not um, unfamiliar with the idea that good things can be overdone, especially when we're talking about other kinds of uh, goods. Um, certainly, we know that um, in the case of certain kinds of purely uh, phenomenological goods, you know, sort of experiential goods, you know, cheesecakes, you know, the taste of cheesecake, you can overdo that. I mean, you know, by the by the you know the the twentieth bite of cheesecake, maybe you've had enough and it's not so pleasing anymore. But the the sense in which I think it's possible to overdo democracy is different from that cheesecakey sense. I think it's possible to overdo democracy on um, a different model of, of what it is to have too much of a good thing, which is the crowding out model. That is to say that sometimes we overdo a good thing by pursuing it in such a way, sometimes by pursuing it with such an intensity that we allow its pursuit to crowd out and expel from our lives other good things, other good pursuits other good uh, aspiration. One of the examples I use in the book, which people tend to like, which I'll just run through very quickly here, uh, is a real world example uh, from somebody I actually knew uh, who decided one day that she would um, take up the project of achieving optimal physical fitness. And so she put herself, you know, with the proper guidance and everything, she wasn't, you know, stupid about this. She put herself um, on a pretty uh, demanding exercise and nutritional regimen and in a short period of time, achieved really marvelous results. And so she wasn't overdoing her fitness regimen in a usual way. That is, she wasn't overdoing it in a way that, you know, she, she pulled a muscle and wound up hurting herself. The way that she was overdoing it, though, is that everything in her life became, you know, sort of orbited around, it started orbiting around the next workout. And so her entire life was consumed by this project. Now, she wasn't any less fit for it. And maybe, again, I, I'll tell you the punchline in a second, maybe she's nonetheless happy for it. But the problem was that she lost all of her friends. We mm -hmm. all lost time. Maybe she, uh, maybe she has new friends. I don't know. But, <laughs> right. you know, she lost, we couldn't make new, fi couldn't new fit make friends, Bob. New yeah, yeah, fit yeah, yeah, friends, yeah, yeah, Bob. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, she's got gym buddies. You know, but um, <laughs> right. you know, but you know, we all lost touch with her. The things that we used to do with her, and uh, you know, it it just became impossible to um, do anything with her that wasn't working out. And so you know, the way I developed the um, the example in the book. Is that, um, you know, and this is deviating at least from what I know about this particular real world case, but it's it's not hard to imagine that this is how this has played out for this particular person. You know, the, the point of being fit became the next workout. <laughs> you know, the reason why what made it fitness important for her was that the fitter she was, the better she would be at the gym tomorrow. And that strike that strikes me as a kind of distortion of the good of fitness. Because, you know, again, I guess 
this is uh, a point that can be debated. Although, you know, uh, when I've used this example uh, in talking to people about the book, people seem generally to be on board with this thought that, you know, the point of being fit can't be the workouts, right? The reason why fitness is a good and the kind of good that it is, it might be for some sort of very important instrumental reasons, but not purely instrumental reasons. Being fit enables us to do other things right? It doesn't merely produce those other things. So it's not flatly instrumental, but it's an enabling condition for, you know, hikes with friends, <laughs> you know, engaging in rewarding experiences with other people. And when fitness becomes what the pursuit is about, when that's the single-minded uh, aim of the pursuit, things start getting warped, it seems to me. Now, I want to suggest that democracy has a similar structure in that when democracy becomes the sole organizing principle around our social lives and our social interactions and our social engagements, when everything we do together is understood by us to be in the service of our democratic and political objectives, we kind of we, we lose sight of what's so important about doing politics well, because clearly the point of politics isn't more politics. The point of politics is creating a social world in which, because of the political structure being organized the way that it is, each of us is able to pursue projects of other kind, kind right? Um, and so the thought is that um, we can overdo democracy when we allow our democratic political objectives and pursuits to crowd out the bases for social goods of other kinds. And it turns out, as I argue uh, in the book, that there are certain kinds of other goods of a non-political but still social sort that democracy needs us to pursue if we're going to behave well, perform well as democratic citizens. What do you say to, to this objection? So someone might say, well, well, it seems like the, the analogy that you just painted is strong, um, but they may say that the two are different in this sense that, listen, everything is not fitness, right? So it yeah. makes sense, right, that she was overdoing it. Um, but then someone might say, well, everything is political, yeah, yeah, right? And so perhaps the two is different in some kind of way. So what do you, what do you say to that response? Well, that's a good, you know, and, and you're right. This is a, this is a response that I've, I've, been been trying to address adequately, and I get different versions of it um, ever since I even even before I started writing the book. Um, so I want to say one very sort of quick uh, sort of second order thing, which is that um, you know there are lots of different things that one can mean when one says everything is political. Some of them I think are true in a non-trivial sense. I mean, some of them I think are true and important and penetrating, but don't don't challenge. The, the thesis. Others, I think, are more obscure, and it's sort of hard to get a, a sense of, of, of what's being claimed. Now, one thing that I do want to say is, yes, if by saying that everything is political, one means to call attention to the fact, and I take it to be a fact, that the full explanation of any human thing, any human matter, <laughs> any human affair, will make ineliminable, non-reducible reference to political structures, political institutions, uh, politicized or the, the, the political ends of the social. All that seems to me to be correct. That is that everything is political in that sense, 
But that sense is consistent with everything's being sociological, everything's being biological. That is to say that, yeah, the full description of any human thing is going to have to involve discussion of political structures, institutions, practices, the genealogy of of certain kinds of uh, political structures. That seems to me to be true and important and nothing that I would want to um, reject. The Where I think the criticism sort of connects with and gives pushback to the thesis that um, sometimes we have to do things together that are not political is when uh, the, the, the claim is made that because everything is political, there could be nothing that we do together that is not itself politics. Now, I just introduced a slight, sort of a very uh, sneaky uh, philosopher's distinction between calling something political and calling something politics. Um, so, um, and I'm really committed to the idea that there are things that we can do together that are not enactments of politics. Now, that's to say, those things are political in the sense that I just outlined, right? They're made possible by political structures in order to understand those activities. Certain kinds of political conditions have to be in place in order for those activities to be possible. There has to be certain political structures that enable it, so on and so forth. But, um, you know, not every, uh, I want to just assert now, you know, not everything is politics. That is, not every activity that we engage in is itself, and now I'm going to put another word in here, just politicking, right? Because you one wants to say, look, if everything is politics, is the claim that everything's politics also just politics? Right? You want to say, like, well, like, let's think about ways in which we, we, by everything, we don't mean everything in some very robust, broad, you know, sort of boundless metaphysical sense. Is it that everything people do together is politics? Is asking me the question itself politics? What now? So I would push back a little bit in in that way. And again, so, you know, I'm also, a, a, you know, again, as a, as a kind of pragmatist, I'm also sort of a dialectical philosopher. So a lot would happen, you know, when we're thinking, like, what would you say about this objection? A lot would turn on what the imagined interlocutor is actually imagined to respond. Um, but so w- one thing I would want to say to this kind of objection is sort of I'd want to query a little bit what the claim means when the interlocutor says well, everything is politics. And to see whether the interlocutor that we're envisioning is ready to recognize some of those distinctions. Everything is politics. Is that different from everything being political? Do by everything do we mean every every little morsel of human behavior? Do we mean every activity? Do we mean every activity that's done in certain? Con- I mean, so I'd want to just sort of query the the contours and the boundaries of the claim. But at the end of the day, I'd, I'd, uh, depending on how that works out, I do want to say the following which is this. The interlocutor we're envisioning is going to insist that everything is politics because everything is an enactment of, uh, rather, if the interlocutor wants to say everything is political because everything is is, is an enactment of our politics, I'd want to say, look, here's how that strikes me. It may be true as a sort of description of contemporary social conditions in the United States, by the way. So it's not just a description in some, you know, merely uh, uh, impossible world. Our actual world is a world in which particular lives, particular bodies, particular lifestyles, particular choices that people make, particular ways in which people are embedded in the world and embodied in the world are politicized, right? They are inescapably political. 
the you know as sometimes in you know, in in uh, given colloquia talks on this that people say things like my very existence is a political thing, and I want to say yeah okay, but there is a sense in uh, there is a sense um, of that claim which I can only hear as a complaint about the way things are. That is, it's part of the story of a particular, sadly predominant style of injustice that gets expressed when someone says, my very existence is a political thing. That seems to me to be part of the story of the oppression, <laughs> right? And it also seems to me, to second point now, it seems to me like, you know, when you read uh, sort of narrative accounts, uh, of uh, people living under extreme forms of oppression, political oppression, social oppression, very you know uh, um, abject forms of social exclusion, uh, you know from former communist countries, slave narratives, uh, certain kinds of uh, narratives about uh, living in, under conditions that are abusive. You know, it's not uncommon to hear a thought like the following expressed. Part of the way in which I was dominated was that every moment of my life was looking over was spent in part looking over my shoulder to see what the broader political, social, partisan impact was going to be of this ordinary thing. I thought I was just listening to music, but it turns out I'm thinking particularly of one uh, account of living in uh, Soviet Russia. Thought I was just enjoying music, but it turns out that the music was determined by the party to be capitalist or to be bourgeois in a certain way. And so it rendered me suspicious to people with lots of power that this is what I was doing. I thought it was just music. Turns out it's not because people above me with power declared that that particular style of music was you know, uh, in some way dissenting or in some way seditious. Um, that looks to me like a, like um, the mark of an authoritarian regime, that everything is politics in that sense. And so if we want to say, yeah, but look, you know, Bob, everything is politics in that sense. So, well, that's a very serious, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not evaluated. That's a, it might be true. You know, for all I know, this book is not a, uh, uh, um, this book is not, does not in the business of positively evaluating any particular living democracy, right? I just want to say, yeah, it might be true that everything is politics in the United States in that way. That looks to me like a severe indictment of its democratic credentials. If there's no escape from the world of partisan loyalty and partisan expression and furthering an objective, uh, that looks to me like itself a kind of oppressive ideal. So that's the, that's the, I hope that's enough. That's the flavor of the kind of, you know, series of responses I would give, you know, query the claim, you know, talk about how, you know, when people say everything is politics, that's, that, that is often a an element, a, a one of the prongs, one of the the ways in which they describe their oppression, and then make that broader claim that it's it's a it's a mark of authoritarian regimes to turn everything into a matter of political loyalty, disloyalty, or dissent. That seems to me to be an anti-democratic thought. So 
So you mentioned partisanship. So good. let's kind of talk about polarization. All right, good. good. <laughs> Not to say that the two is the same, but that's right. That's right. So, so you you describe two types of of polarization in your in your book, and and I wonder if you can explain them here. Yeah. And I also I also wonder what does polarization have to do with democracy being overdone? Great, 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 great. And this this is really the heart of the argument of the book. And so you know, there's this word polarization. That is very frustrating. I don't know if you feel this frustration. I feel the frustration because, you know, in the political vernacular, among the political commentary, uh, political commentators of our day, you know, people use this word all the time. It's supposed to name some very bad, unfortunate condition uh, of a of a polity. But it's very un, uh, uncommon that people uh, who use the term in their political commentary for, to actually say what they're talking about. Because some things that are called polarization don't seem to me to be, by themselves at least, problematic. Um, and some of them even seem to me to be what you should expect when you've got a well-functioning democracy. And then there are other uh, senses of the term and other phenomena that are named by that term that strike me as quite serious and and very uh, important for democratic theory. So let me just begin with what I think is the the more common um, in the vernacular of political commentary sense of polarization, which I'll just call political polarization. That's uh, one of the the horns of this distinction that uh, I draw in the book. So political polarization is just that familiar condition where two different, often opposed, but let's just say different for now, political formations, and it's helpful in present context to think of them as political parties. So let's just say, you know, political polarization is the condition of the two major parties having moved to the poles of their ideological commitments such that the middle ground between them falls out. There's nobody who can bridge the gap. And what you get in those conditions are all kinds of what are often thought to be, and in most cases are, political dysfunctions, right? If democracy is going to succeed, um, it's got to do stuff. Uh, it's got to get things done. If it's going to get things done, there's got to be compromise and cooperation and people who don't see eye to eye, nonetheless, being able to work together to make politics go. And in conditions of extreme political polarization, all of that common ground drops out. And so what you get is just deadlock and uh, log jams and paralysis and stagnation. And that's often very bad. Uh, and in cases, it's very bad because it just preserves the status quo. So if you don't like the status quo, it's bad uh, in that way, too. Now, that is an important feature of uh, our, our politics. And I think that it is has reached a level that is dysfunctional. Now, I don't think that political polarization to any degree is necessarily a bad thing or necessarily dysfunctional. Um, you know, after all, you know, political disagreements are often disagreements about important things like justice. And, you know, um, there are certain things that um, we shouldn't compromise on. And I'm willing to say all that stuff. So I don't want to say that polarization in this political sense as such is a democratic dysfunction. I think that polarization in the political sense, when it reaches the level that we've, we have reached in this country, is dysfunctional. But even having said that, I don't think that's where the action is with polarization. I think the action with polarization rests in this other phenomenon that's called polarization that is a cognitive uh, or psychological 
I would even say affective phenomenon that has been, you know, well studied, uh, you know, for, you know, 60 years now around the world. It doesn't seem to vary with any of the traditional markers that you might think it would, you know, you know, education level, economic achievement, geography, religious affiliation, gender, race, ethnicity, uh, other ways of socially identifying oneself don't seem to vary, don't seem to cause variance in, in this phenomenon. And what I'll call belief polarization then is this cognitive phenomenon by which interaction, which I'll have to sort of cash out in a second, interaction among like-minded people turns the interactors into more extreme versions of themselves. Okay, so you know there there are sort of like um, uh, we could say uh, sort of uh, down home kinds of examples about yes men and like what happens when people keep telling you you're great, you keep thinking you're great, and then eventually you know you get an overinflated sense of your greatness. So you know we've got these sort of you know uh, sort of you know toy kinds of examples of this, but it turns out that this is a uh, uncommonly robust social scientific and social psychological phenomenon. In fact, you know researchers. You know, back in the in the in the 70s, you can find articles studying this, saying this is the most robust phenomenon we've got uh, in social psychology. And let me just run through some of the, the 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 features of it because it's it's kind of fascinating in its own right, and then you know it's terrifying in its political implications. But let's just start with the fascinating thing. So basically. You know, like-minded people interacting for the sake of this, these kinds of examples, just let's talk about like-minded groups talking to one another. Like-minded groups talking to one another about the thing that makes them a like-minded group, that is about the thing they all agree on, um, they shift, the members shift to hold more extreme versions of that shared belief than the one that they started the the uh, the conversation with. So here's just an easy example. Uh, lots of experiments are done with uh, it, with, with these sort of fake juries. Um, so you get a bunch of people to act as a jury. You run through the details of a case. Then you take each of them aside and you say, you know, if you found this guy to have been guilty of this thing that he's alleged to have done, you know, is that a serious crime? Is that a serious infraction? And some of them say yes, and you take the ones who say yes, and you say, okay, what kind of punishment, if he's found guilty, should he be forced uh, uh, to suffer? And let's just, for simplicity, let's just use sort of monetary uh, uh, penalties. Like, you know, well, he should have to, he, he, he should have to pay, you know, $20,000. And then you say, okay, well, that's a pretty stiff penalty. You know, but if he's guilty, do you think it would be excessive to punish him? you know, with a fine of $50,000. And, you know, people say, yeah, 50,000 is too high. 20,000 is where I think is, 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 is about right. Okay. And you get all of those people who said, yes, it's a serious thing. And, you know, roughly 20,000 is about right. You get them together to talk about the case after they've decided that the guy has been, that the guy is guilty. They all emerge from that conversation, not only wanting to punish him more than $20,000, but many of them will go far above the 50,000 that they initially said, yeah, that they initially said was too excessive. So not only do you become more extreme, you become more extreme than you were willing to admit would be legitimate, right? Now, that's one kind of experiment. Here's a different because it has to do with personal risk. There are these other experiments that involve sort of community groups or members who see themselves as community activists. And in the experimental condition, you say, well, let's imagine that a particular kind of act of police brutality or some other kind of political corruption was uncovered. 
And, you know, what do you think would be the right community response to this kind of uh, corruption? And you get a bunch of people together and they say, well, you know, we should we should protest. Like, OK, you should protest. Should you protest without getting the, the right kind of permits? Uh, yeah, no, I think we could protest without getting permits. We should just have a, you know, a, a protest. OK, should it be violent? Should you destroy property? No, 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 no. Violence is not. We don't get to torch the cop cars. We don't get right. So you get people to set the limits to what they think a excessive and unjustified response would be. Then you get them together talking about what the group should do and all move to, to endorse more um, excessive and more risky protesting behaviors than what they walked into the conversation advocating. And many of them go on to advocate the kinds of behaviors that they said were beyond the pale. <laughs> right now, last kind of example, because you might think, well, OK, these are examples about people's value judgments and how they understand sort of uh you know, questions about dessert and appropriateness and and the and justice. Okay, well, maybe they're getting new information. Maybe they, you know, maybe there's all kinds of ways in which you know their prior selves were just too lenient, you know, or or or, or not not militant enough. Um, this also works with purely empirical questions. So you ask a bunch of people, you know, is Denver a particularly highly elevated city in the United States? Now, it's important I said highly elevated because we're not talking about drug laws. Is Denver a particularly highly elevated city in the United States? And they say, yeah, it's particularly highly elevated. It's well known for being a particularly highly elevated city. Say, how high is it? And they'll give some answer. And then you say, do you think Denver might be, you know, 50,000 feet higher? And they say, no, 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 it's not that high, right? You get them together to talk about the elevation of Denver. And they all shift to a higher estimation, many going above what they thought was the threshold. With the, um, the there have been experiments even on sort of like, you know, how comfortable, what's the most comfortable chair in this set of four chairs? <laughs> you know, which, which chair among this set is most comfortable? Like rate each one for its comfort. And you get all the people who, you know, they rate one particular chair a seven out of 10. You get them together to talk about that chair, and they all inch up to 10. So, okay, so we've got this cognitive phenomenon that has to do with some sort of mix of informational factors, right? You've got a like-minded group talking together. People hear, as Cass Sunstein says, louder and louder echoes of their own voices. They hear, perhaps, new kinds of reasons that favor the view that the group has. And we know that uh, the social epistemologists uh, know that, you know, when we hear a new reason for something we already believe, we tend to overestimate the probative or epistemic value of that new reason uh, because it sounds new to us. We think it must be particularly weighty. So there are informational features to it. There are these other sort of more social dynamic features to it, right? You want to seem to be an authentic rather than a poser, right? You want to see an, you want to seem to be an authentic member of the group rather than a you know sort of a a, a fair weather member of the group or a poser uh, or an inauthentic member of the group. And so the way that you do that is you recalibrate your commitment so that it's just a little bit above what you perceive to be the average. And everybody does that at the same time. And so you could see you get this group effect where everybody starts moving in the direction of more and more extremity. Then there's this other uh, way to understand what's going on in the phenomenon, because as it turns out, and this is something we learned uh, fairly recently in these experiments, you know, um, here's a 
here's a philosopher's lesson about social scientific research that I'm sure you, because of your own work, I'm sure you appreciate, right? Like sometimes, you know, you find in really, really competently done social science, right? Certain, the absence of certain philosophical materials and tools that really, really make a, make a difference, kind of like makes you feel good about being a philosopher when you could to them. So because like-minded group discussion is a reliable setting for producing the effect, and because like-minded group discussion is an easy setting to study it, a lot of the literature had presumed that like-minded group discussion was necessary for the effect, and it's not. <laughs> that is, it turns out, you can get the, sh the extremity shift, the shift to the more extreme view and the more extreme attitude and the more extreme disposition. Um, you can get that without anybody exchanging information or confronting one another face to face. You can get the extremity shift simply with a chart. The chart that says, Maisha, people like you think this thing that you think. It's that kind of what I call in the book corroboration. Just, hey, my people are like me in believing that thing that I also believe. That's enough to get the shift, which is an affective, like you, as I say in the book, I'm like, what goes on here? It seems to me, or what I, what I try to argue or at least suggest in the book is, yeah, the group, the, the belief polarization shifts have to do with sort of feeling better about yourself because you've learned that the people who you think are your people are like you in this new respect. They also think, you know, capital punishment is unjust. They think that too. And I say, that sort of elevates your sense of the value of your epistemic perspective. And that's enough to create the shifts. Now, what's important about that feature of the belief polarization phenomenon is that if you think that, if you see that that is at least one of the mechanisms by which it occurs, say, now I understand why crowd sizes are so important to certain politicians. Now I understand why seas of red baseball caps are always, go, always visible in the background. Now I understand why candidates running for any office whatsoever, local or otherwise, like lawns to be covered in the very same campaign sign, because it doesn't matter. You're not, it's not about accumulating information. It's not about sort of weighing up, you know, the, the cumulative weight of a bunch of different considerations that point in the direction of the thing that you believe. It's merely just numbers. How many people that you identify with think the things that you think is enough to get you not only to believe a more extreme version of that thing, but as it turns out, it's also enough to get you to be more enthusiastic, to be more ready to act on behalf of that belief. And uh, here's where the more depressing thing comes to get to the second part of your question at long last. Um, as we believe polarized, not only do our commitments become more extreme, our negative assessments of the people who disagree with us also become more extreme. That is, as we become more confirmed and extreme in our own attitudes and commitments, the people who are in the outgroup look to us more depraved, less rational, more inscrutable, harder to understand. It's become, we become more, once we find out that a speaker doesn't believe the thing that, that we believe, we're more likely to interrupt them, less likely to listen to them, less likely to hear what they say as rational. And um, we become more inclined to see them as things that stand in need of diagnosis 
So just to use a little bit of philosophical vocabulary that I know you're familiar with, we become more inclined to adopt the Strassonian objective attitude towards people once we find out that on the things that matter to us, they don't believe what we believe. They, they start looking to us more like you know, episodes of bad weather rather than people who have reasons that we just think are not particularly weighty or reasons that we think aren't particularly persuasive or reasons that we think aren't particularly good reasons or reasons that are based on some misconstrual of the facts. They start looking to us more like um, failed agents rather than people who just have you know messed up views about things that could in principle be, be corrected. So that sets up in a but I hope is an easy segue, um, what, the, the, what the danger is to democracy with this second, this belief version of polarization. That is that as we interact more and more only with people who share our own political profiles, and I'll say in a minute why I think it's true that that antecedent, that if is correct, not only do we become more extreme in our own commitments, that might not be a problem. You know, The more extreme version of your political views might be closer to the truth. It's we become less and less able to see our political opponents as our political equals. And we come to see more and more of what they do as an expression, their politics. We come to see more and more of what they do as explicable in terms of their misguided political commitments. If this is a puzzling thought, uh, here's the, again, the sort of the, the, the down home, you know, public philosopher example, like just take a moment to think about how much of what goes under the name of sort of political criticism in our country is really just mocking the other side's consumption habits. You know, you're drinking, you're the, you're, you're drinking the, the fancy latte, right? Or you drive, you're wearing camo, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's sort of like the, these, these lifestyle decisions, the consumption habits become ways of, or become legible, let's say, as signals, markers, and expressions of uh, political identity. And we've internalized that as a country. We now, it's not merely a scriptive. It's not merely that people ascribe to us, let's just say liberal political views because we're carrying a tote bag, carry the tote bag now as a way of signaling are progressive or environmentalist political. And in fact, if you look at the messaging that often is on tote bags, you can see this, right? They often have pro-environment, pro some kind of kind of political messaging. The MSNBC tote bags, by the way, say, this is who we are, which I find really interesting. <laughs> this is who we are, right? Um, so um, uh, owning tote bags, the number of tote bags you own is positively correlated with how liberal you are. <laughs> By the way, um, so, so so here's the here's the way to tie this all together, right? What makes belief polarization sort of problematic for a democracy is that our belief polarization is largely the product of the fact that the country over the past 25, 30 years now has undergone a certain kind of sociological shift or has fallen into a kind of sociological pattern that some people call partisan sorting, and that's a good enough term for it. That is, the social spaces we inhabit in our day-to-day -day lives, the neighborhoods we live in, the places we work, the route we take and the method of transport we take to our jobs are all spaces now that far more than they were 25, 30 years ago are sorted according to partisan identity. The person standing behind you at the coffee shop, 
wherever you buy your coffee. If it's at Starbucks, that person is really likely to have voted for the same person you voted mm. for the last election. If it's Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> that person voted for a different person. But right, that person right. is standing in front of another person who voted the same way he did. So when you start looking at the ways in which what are at least arguably, now I'm going to, I will argue if you want me to, at least arguably non-political sites, you know, the, the, the grocery stores that we live in, what restaurants we eat at. If you look at the stats in the United States at, you know, the, the districts that Barack Obama won, something like 80 something percent of them have a Whole Foods in them. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I, I knew he was going to mention Whole Foods in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and then you look at, you get a similar statistic with McCain and Cracker Barrel, right? Right. So right, you right. start thinking about these the spaces from neighborhoods and workplaces. Now, we haven't even mentioned, we can talk about it if you like, but this is a really obvious case congregations, religious communities, that right. they've become more politically homogeneous over the past 25 years, means that our everyday encounters, mm. planned and unplanned, mm-hmm. with coworkers, with strangers, with the guy who lives in the, the building next door, with the person who serves coffee at the coffee shop, our everyday encounters with people are increasingly unlikely to put us in touch with people who are unlike ourselves politically. So, so this, this leads me to my next question. I'm yeah. glad you mentioned this point because you're right. If we want to do democracy well, we need some time to do something else. Right. And it seems as if you've already kind of your, your, your later example kind of shows even when you're doing something else. Right. You're doing that else with people who think the same as you. That's right. And so so I want to ask a two part question here. We need some time to do something else. I wonder what this something else is. Good. And are you content? <laughs> With doing the something else with the same people, or and if it's not with the same people, how do you do this something else with different people? Good, good, good. So the 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 big thought then that which gets me to that sort of prescription, you know, we got to do something else, is that the social spaces are partisan sorted. That makes that that amplifies and exaggerates our exposure to the belief polarization phenomenon. The belief polarization phenomenon renders us less likely, less able to perform well as democratic citizens, because performing well as democratic citizens requires us to maintain, at least within a wide breadth of political opinion, requires us to maintain that our political opponents who reside within that wide breadth of opinion are nonetheless our political equals entitled to an equal say, even if we think they're politically misguided in very serious ways. That's how that argument works. Now, you know, in the book, um, I, I worry, and um, and I'll say it's not just kind of um, stage setting and and you know drama for effect. I am seriously today um, concerned that the argument of the book, the argument as I just laid out, really does paint us into a corner. If the social spaces are already partisan sorted, if they've already been saturated with party loyalties and political allegiances, how is it possible even? Uh, This is a way of reframing your question. How even is it possible to do something else? There is nothing else if the partisan sorting is as deep and as pervasive as um, the data give us reasons to suggest. So first thing I want to say is, yeah, it's clear that, it's clear to me, and I try to make the case in the book, that the way out of this sort of vicious circle of saturation and polarization 
can't be that we just, you know, sort of look around and find something to do and then go do it because uh, we've got, we instead have to, we have to construct and build and, and, and make new venues and new sites and new social spaces where activities can take place that are not organized around partisan identity and loyalties. Now, what I say in the book is, look, the way to start with this is sort of uh, a little bit of self-help, maybe, as uh, one uh, commentator put it to me recently. Say, look, the thing to recognize if we want to rehabilitate democracy, it's not, I'm not saying go join a, you know, bipartisan softball league. This is not a proposal that says, invite your conservative, you know, uh, cousins over for dinner and have lunch with them. I'm not, you could do those things. And, you know, maybe that would be good to do. Maybe it's not a lot. Depends on who we're talking about. It's not a kind of like learn to love your enemies proposal. The proposal is rather try to find cooperative and social things to do with others in which their partisan identities are simply unknown, are simply not part of the description of what's being done. As I put it at one point in the book, you know, we need to we need to put politics in its place by creating sites within our society where there are, there are possible Right, where it's possible to engage in pro-social cooperative endeavors, where politics is not suppressed, it's not bracketed, it's just irrelevant. Right now, what kind of thing is that? Is the the major question, and I want to say one sort of cheeky philosophical thing, right? Which is that, yeah, the extent to which we have a hard time imagining this, I think, is a symptom. Right. I think that that is that is a a further piece of evidence that we haven't put with that. We've allowed politics to take over too much of our social lives together that we can't even think about, you know, that that every you know, I sometimes put it this way when I give talks I'm like, you know, like when you say like, oh, you're saying we need to reach across the aisle. Like, no, no. Reaching across the aisle still centers the politics. Right. The aisle is the politics. I want to say, no, no, no. We need to do things together in which we're not reaching across the aisle, but we're just doing something in which I have no idea who you voted for or what your political views are. Not because we've decided to not discuss that, but because it's just not part of the not part of the profile of the activity. And if you can't imagine what that would be like, that's a symptom, not a counterexample. Right. Okay. So first step, I think, is that we've just got to come to recognize our own vulnerability to these phenomena, the polarization, right? You know, people often say, oh, yeah, like th th those conservatives, they're crazy. Look, at they all get together and they rile themselves up. And then before you know it, they, you know, they become really radicalized. And so we've got this account of the way belief polarization works that you know, conveniently uh, matches our political opponents all the time. Right. But there's no reason to think that we ourselves are not vulnerable to those very same cognitive forces. And in fact, there's all kinds of reason to think that, yeah, your susceptibility, your vulnerability to this cognitive phenomenon, you know, doesn't vary in any significant way with your political profile. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're all susceptible to this. And let's, you know, let's stop with the thought. And this is a thought that I, I, I get sometimes in response to some of these ideas, it's like, yeah, well, what are we going to do to just get the conservatives to stop being so belief polarized? Like, okay, well, you know, 
you can see it in other, you can see it on the other side very clearly, but it's part of the profile of the phenomenon, as you know, you know, in your own work, a lot of these sort of quasi or these sort of doxastic slash affective phenomena are like part of the phenomenon is that you can't see it when it's you, right? Like, good, good, good. Right. So it's like, yeah, you don't see it in yourself, but look, we've got all this evidence indirect that shows that, yeah, we're each vulnerable to this. So it doesn't mean that you have to moderate your political commitments. That doesn't mean that you have to stop every once in a while and, you know, sort of say three times to yourself, you know, Republicans are not crazy. You know, maybe they've got a point. You don't have to do any of that. I do think, though, that what you have to do is to sort of say, well, wait a minute now, you know, maybe my inclination to think that my political foes are all depraved enemies of democracy, maybe that's the thing that's that needs to be moderated. Maybe there are some people who are my political opponents who are misinformed in certain ways or who are in the grip of a certain kind of reason, uh, you know, an error of reasoning or have got bad values. but you know, maybe they can be corrected, that they're not existential enemies to everything that's, you know, good and just in the world. They're just politically misguided. I think that, by the way, would be progress in this country, because I think that now the inclination is for us to each see the opposing side as enemies of freedom and liberty and equality and democracy and everything that's good and just in the world. And uh, that can't be a functioning democratic community. Um, so that's one. Work on our, that's the self-help, is a, do a little sort of reflection on oneself and one's cognitive vulnerabilities and uh, foibles. The, the second is, I'd say, try to imagine something that you can do with others that is not, according to your best judgment, is not an expression of your partisan political project and try it. And if your partisan identity gets affirmed in the course of doing that, do something else. If you find yourself surrounded by people who are insisting upon a partisanship of an opposing kind, try to tell them that you're not there to do the politics. And if that doesn't work, do something else. And I'll just give one quick example of something that uh, it's, it's not hard to do. I suppose in Nashville might not be easy to do in a lot of other parts of the of the country. There's a uh, there's a um, uh, a famous I should say um, club in town called the Station Inn where they play bluegrass music. This is not music that I know a lot about or am particularly interested in. I should say aesthetically, I go there on occasion, and it's a kind of divey place, but it's really top notch musicianship. So I'm told, and so I've come to learn. And, you know, because it's Nashville and people just feel free to talk to each other, which is, you know, not true in the parts of the country that I'm originally from, you know, you find out, you get into conversations with people about the music. Now, I don't I mean, I, I have no reason to suspect that the people who are showing up at this club are on my side politically. In fact, I've got probably good indirect evidence to think that, you know, these people voted for the wrong, these people have voted for the wrong person in every election I could think of. But the conversation is about the mandolin player, the songwriter, the way, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the way the harmonica was played, you know, the, the history of the instrumentation. And, you know, you walk away from those encounters saying, well, look, I don't know what this person's politics are. I don't know what they are, but I find it hard to see that person as intellectually vacant. 
as morally depraved. Why? Because I know something about him. He's got a really, really acute aesthetic sense and a very sophisticated understanding of this art form, this style of music, this this musical tradition that still not my favorite music, still not, you know, a genre I listen to regularly, but there's something there that is intellectually and morally engaging. And to have conversations and to sit and enjoy a musical performance and then just with a stranger who you can just have a conversation with kind of, I have to say in my own case, sort of rehabilitates my understanding of what the people on the politically other, you know, what the people who are politically unlike myself might be like, right? They've got goals and objectives and ways of valuing things that aren't so alien. They're different. They're not alien and inscrutable to me. They're different. And that makes it easier for me to see that guy as, when it comes to politics, as somebody who's entitled, doesn't really get an equal say, but is entitled to it. And I think that's a major, it's a small, and sometimes, you know, big problems get uh, addressed by taking small steps. It's a small, but I think really significant uh, act of democratic rehabilitation. No, I like that. I like that. So, Bob, can you tell us about the Why We Argue podcast? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I, I did the Why We Argue podcast. It's been in hiatus mainly because the funding source uh, through um, Michael Lynch's uh, grant at UConn had kind of shifted and all the rest. And um, so it's been on, on hiatus for a while, but we're going to, I think, uh, start talking about getting it back up and running. The Why We Argue podcast, uh, you were a guest on one of the episodes, was an attempt to reach out right after the election, I should say, the last president election to political thinkers of various kinds, not all of them academics, but many of them academics, some of them in the public policy sector, some of them just in the the business of political commentary, and just to try to engage in 20, 30 minutes max, a conversation about what happened, right? About what's going on politically in the country. So the very first series of episodes were episodes about, you know, what to make of the election. And, you know, Elizabeth Anderson came on and Bill Galston and Shanto uh, 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 Iyengar. I mean, a bunch of uh, different folks came on to talk about things like polling and, you know, populism and all the rest. And um, then as the program evolved, we, you know, started talking uh, about some broader social issues, the role of philosophy in public, the, the value of podcasting. These were uh, some of the things that you and I discussed, Maisha, on your episode. Um, but also, Things like, um, you know, the removal of Confederate monuments from public spaces um, and sort of things that were sort of going on politically and socially in, in, in the moment. Right. So these were conversations that were designed to not be these sort of philosophical you know, pronouncements about big eternal truths. They were supposed to be focused on highly topical and temporally bounded things. and also. It was um, in part aimed at a kind of, how should I put this, a a kind of mission that uh, I sometimes see myself as engaged in in our profession, philosophy. 
Now you do a podcast, so maybe um, I'm hoping we have come to uh, similar views because it was a revelation to me when I started doing the New Books in Philosophy podcast, which I've been doing for 10 years, which is this. Philosophers think that they're worse than they are at talking. Right, right, yeah, yes. Right, so, yep. you know, that's not to say that they're always good at it. <laughs> yeah. But so, right, so there are obstacles and, and hurdles and all the rest. But if you can get a philosopher talking in the right context with the right kind of interlocutor under the right description, philosophers are a lot better than they think they are. And many of them are, to their surprise, very, very good at communicating across disciplinary boundaries and to broader audiences. Yes. So part of the why we argue, I'm glad that you find that yourself in listening to your podcast. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, and I, have yeah. to, I have to convince guests of that <laughs> oh, yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time. Yeah, yes. yeah that, that's right. So yeah, doing the why we argue thing, I have to say, look, they'd be like, oh, God, it's only 20 minutes. I'm not going to be able to say anything until I'm like, you're going to be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> you, you know, you're better, better at this than you think you are. And I think that that's a really important service that um, one can uh, play one's little, in my case, very little uh, part in, in the profession is sort of saying, well, wait a minute, you know, you're better at this than you think you are. You know, you're, we, after all, you know, none, none of us, I don't think, and I hope none of us gets in front of our classes of undergraduates and reads a paper at them. Right. I mean, we talk to students, right? Like, okay, the public philosophy thing, engage engaging a broader public, talking about, you know, things that are present and of, of deep concern, we've got skills that, in, that should make us good at this. Um, we've just gotten into the habit of thinking of ourselves as, as bad at it. So the Why We Argue podcast was the attempt to sort of, you know, ask philosophers and politically minded theorists and uh, commentators of other kinds to just, you know, talk to me for 20 to 30 minutes about some very present thing, unscripted, uh, you know, and I, I, I never quite, you know, like sent them the questions. They're like, I want to talk about these three things very broadly. And um, I have to say, you know, the results were, I, I, if I can say this without saying, but sounding like I'm bragging, uh, the results were, I thought were, 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 were typically um, really encouraging. People were candidly able to say, you know, to articulate very, very deep thoughts that were really, uh, at least um, as far as I am concerned, were really important things to have um, available for people to hear. And the 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 um, uh, the response uh, to the podcast was was generally uh, a very positive uh, when we were still producing episodes regularly. Generally, very positive, and not altogether uh, from mostly from academics, but not only from academics. So last question here. Yeah. I want to know two things that you have discovered while in quarantine. Okay. Let's see. So, and I take it you mean two things that quarantine has helped me to discover. <laughs> I guess you can say that. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Because <laughs> there are things that I've discovered while so this I don't quarantine. Know if quarantine helps you, but we, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. Um, so, you know, let me say one uh, one thing very quickly. So I've been on uh, sabbatical leave for this whole year. So a lot of the things that people have been forced to learn, like Zoom and how to manage online teaching and all the rest, I have been, uh, it makes me even... Uh, I feel bad for my colleagues as I utter these words. I have not had to do any of that. And maybe I should say I've not learned to do any of that yet because who knows what's going to happen in the fall. But so 
I'm not going to give any answers about Zoom and online stuff and transitioning to uh, the new realities of academia given uh, COVID-19. But I will say this. Uh, I've been here uh, at home uh, with my wife. We don't have children uh, or pets. And it's been very, very pleasant, I should say that. Uh, One of the things I learned is that how important routine is, at least to me. So, you know, um, even though I was on leave or been on leave, you know, when campus was open and there wasn't a stay-at-home order or safer-at-home order in Nashville, you know, when I was in Nashville, um, I would be working articles and, you know, the next project and all the rest. And, you know, I'd get up in the morning and, you know, walk to my office uh, on campus, which is where I, I tended to you know, where I tend to do most of my my uh, my writing and, and and other philosophical work, and you know, so not having that kind of you know, oh, it's you know seven thirty in the morning, get up, take a shower, have some breakfast, check the weather, walk down to the office, pick up coffee on the way, turn on the computer, shut the door, you know, like that. These sort of almost you know mundane, banal kinds of, but very regimented uh, in my case at least activities were sort of instantly kind of just dismantled was a little bit of a a shock in a way. I mean, I'm like, whoa, gee, like I, I don't get up at this time and then out the door by this time and at my computer. Yeah. Like, but um, so, but it was also just, it just led me to realize like, yeah, that, you know, the, the 20 minute walk to my office from my home, you know, had a value to it, you know, even though I thought at the time is like, well, this is just, you know, I'm, I'm getting to work and good. I'm glad I don't have to get into a car. You know, I'm just on my way to work. No, like there was something about the routine of it. And, um, that, you know, having that time before, and then at the end of the day after to just sort of, you know, go into work and then return back home was, was important in various ways. Now this is, I guess, connected, but it'll be my second thing. Uh, maybe if you want, you could press me for another one. If you think this is too close, you know, I really came to discover the psychological benefit of, uh, having some place to be outside of the home, <laughs> you know, not because, yeah, again, not because like, you know, the, you know, my house is just not a, you know, my house is a very comfortable place. You know, it's a very calm place. You know, it's not that there's just too much distraction or anxiety in the home. It's just sort of having a change of scenery uh, is psychologically. And again, it, you can tell that I'm sort of like, I'm still in the grips of trying to process this. So sort of psychologically, there's a benefit to having someplace else to be. Um, so what I've started doing is, you know, I, every day I just, I, I take a walk for about an hour. I don't go anywhere in particular. I just take a walk and, um, the psychological benefit of just being out is again, just oddly, it's oddly therapeutic in a way that I I can't quite put my finger on. So I don't know. Those are two things. It's sort of like the routine is really important, but you know, you can have your routine at home. So it's gotta be you know, a routine that sort of involves a a transition, a, 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 even in a very small way, a kind of change of scenery, a, a, a trip. You know, I think that that's those are two things that have occurred to me in part as a result of of the quarantine. How's that sound? That sounds great. That sounds great. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, Bob, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for taking the time out in spite of this this distressful and uh, I can add a whole bunch of adage, adjectives describing <laughs> this time. But thank you so much for taking time out to think through 
some of these ideas and to share with us the themes and ideas from your book. I really appreciate it. Aisha, it's been a real pleasure as it has always been talking to you. Um, and thank you for inviting me. And I'm a big fan of, uh, of the podcast in general. So it's, it's a real thrill to join you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.